Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have those who help others create and grow their businesses. And we have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers. If you're one or more of the above, and like me, many of our listeners who tune in every week are all of the above. Take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we help you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated. Helps us serve more business creators just like you. And you will get fresh content every single week, along with immediate access to a treasure trove of over 230 episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to business creators just like you. We've had a pretty exciting run here on the Business Creators Radio Show lately. We've had a lot of pretty hot topics, and I think it's time to adjust the pace a little bit. And that's why I'm so excited about today's topic, which is about pursuing harmony. I love harmony. I love Zen. I love everything that has to do with balance, everything that has to do with things being in alignment. It's beautiful. It's calming. It's reassuring, and through all those things, it's energizing. To help us guide down that path today, I have with us Tom Rubens. He's a business coach. He's an expert in corporate culture and strategy. In his 40 years of diverse experience in business, Tom founded a a commodity trading company, a real estate brokerage, and assembled investment groups that raised millions of dollars to buy minor league baseball and basketball franchises. Very exciting stuff. In his coaching practice, The Accountability Factor, Tom Rubens helps businesses increase revenue and productivity, manage relationship and collaborations while living harmonious lives. He also leads the Master Coach Forum, which is a mastermind for elite coaches committed to accountability, collaboration, community, and business growth. Very exciting stuff. Tom Rubens, come on in. The weather's fine. Well, hey, thanks for that uh, for the welcome, Adam. I'm a little concerned. First of all, I'm happy to be part of the treasure trove that you referred to earlier in the intro. But then you said you're changing up. It's been really hot in here lately, and you're going to change it up. It made it sound like, okay, now we're dialing down, and this is going to be a boring show. So hopefully, oh no, that no, won't no, be the no, case. Not boring. Not boring, <laughs> not boring at all. Not boring at all. You. Uh, I I love metaphors and I love analogies. So think Mm -hmm. about, uh, I'm thinking about, I was was at the gym earlier this morning, and and this was the day I did the 30 minutes on the octane machine, which is very intense, and I do three different positions. Sometimes I row with both the arms and the legs, sometimes just the arms, sometimes just the legs. Very intense, gets you into a major lather, and then after I finish the octane machine, I like to walk two miles around the track. And during those two miles around the track, I uh, regain my equilibrium, I uh, consolidate all the energy that I've gained, and I find that when I'm in that zone, I go into a major brainstorm that turns out to be extremely beneficial for something that I either am or will be working on. Cool. Are you trying to rub in the fact that I didn't work out this morning or that I probably couldn't even handle that octane machine (laughs) or, you know, I mean, I'm impressed. I am duly impressed, but I've been sitting at my desk for most of the day already. This has been a a tough day and it's only, I'm only halfway through it. And when I say tough, I just mean busy, but it's been a busy day, but not, uh, I think the only thing I've done is I've walked up and down the stairs a few times. So you got me beat I I have the same. I have the same challenge. Uh, sometimes I sit for way too many hours at a time. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a different time zone than you. My day's just getting started. Basically, got a lot of stuff going on today. So Good for you. very exciting. Yeah. Now, Tom, before we dive in, yeah. and I know there's some very interesting things we're going to talk about. What I'd like to do, 
I, as you heard, at the beginning of our episodes, I read off the official bio of our guest expert, and yours is very impressive. What I'd like to do is just go a little bit deeper for our listeners who are right now getting to know you. And okay. tell us a little bit more about you know, your journey from your, from your own personal perspective and what, what some of the experiences are that have brought you to where you are today serving business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, well, Adam, I, I guess the chronological answer would be I started out right out of college as a commodities trader, right. which, yeah. uh, which was sort of a happenstance, really. I graduated in December, thought that I would work for a couple months, save $1,000, go to Europe and apply to law school and figure out where I got in when I got back and then start school. But uh, a couple problems. One, I got a job, but I only made $350 a month, so saving 1000 in two months wasn't going to happen. And right. I really liked the jobs. I, I, li- I, I instantly got a job on, on the options exchange in Chicago, really liked it, and decided uh, to not go to law school. So I did that for quite a while. But if you know anything about commodities trading, it has a tendency to uh, be somewhat, or it can have a tendency to be somewhat like a roller coaster. Uh, the idea is to get off, uh, get off the roller coaster on top, not on the bottom. Uh, I, I, I didn't get that memo, got off at the bottom in my mid-30s, and was pretty much toast emotionally and physically and uh, and financially. And so I had to kind of regroup, re-engineer, just figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And really, uh, just some guy, a friend of mine said to me, he, so he had seen an ad uh, for a minor league football team. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in football, and I wouldn't have even followed up on the ad, except he said, well, why don't you go check on it? As though you're broke, you don't have anything better to do. So I did. Yeah. And I checked on it, and it was sold, and I didn't care. But as soon as I hung up the phone, I thought, you know, I, I happen to be a big basketball fan. At the time, I was living in Chicago, and I knew that there was a minor league basketball team in Rockford, Illinois. That's all I knew. I didn't know what league it was in. I knew nothing. I, well, you know, I wonder. I might have known it was the CBA, but I don't think I knew what CBA stood for. But anyway, I was able to find the number for the team in Rockford. I called them up, and I said, well, you know, where's your where's your league office? Can I have some information? I Later that day, I'm on the phone with the commissioner of the league, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of buying a team, which was a complete bluff. I had no money. But anyway, I wanted to get an idea of what the league was like, Within three weeks, I had met someone who owned a the rights to an expansion franchise, which basically in minor league sports means he had an inactive franchise. He he could operate anywhere, anytime within you know league parameters, but uh, he hadn't done anything with it. So I reached out to him as a former options trader, and I said, okay, he wanted three hundred seventy-five grand for the team. I said, well, I don't have that, but here's what I'll do. It was around the 1st of September. I said, I'll send you a check for 25000 which was basically the last of my, you know, the last of it for me. I said, I'll send you a check for 25000 and if I don't give you the remaining three fifty by the end of April, you keep my 25000 So I was basically buying an option on a minor league base, a basketball team. He thought that was the easiest 25000 he'd ever made, so he said, sure. I sent him the check, and was on my way and now so then I had to figure out how to do this and all I can tell you is that that at that moment I knew I could do it but I just didn't know how so I did all the things that you're supposed to do I I guess which is I put together an LLC I I began to raise money I learned how to raise money and but then the problem was I had never sold anything before so uh, I'm in my first meeting with a guy a potential prospect. And by this time I had learned a lot about the CBA and I knew that no team in the history of the league had ever made money. Uh, So that was a bad start. And so I'm meeting with this guy and I said, uh, he said, well, Tom, what makes you, you know, why no, if you just told me that no team in the history of the league has ever made money, what makes you think that you can do it? And Adam, here was my pitch. You're going to hear the whole thing. I said, well, yeah. Steve, wow. here's the deal. I, yeah, this is my pitch. I, Steve, I've been a Bulls season ticket holder now for about 15 years, and I know what it takes 
to make. I know that season ticket holders are the backbone of the franchise, and I know what it takes. I'm a tough customer. I know what it takes to make a season ticket holder happy, and I think I can do it a little differently. That you've now heard the whole pitch. And yeah. shockingly, he said to me, uh, "Really?" He said, "Well, Tom, let me get this straight. You paid three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars for this team, and now you're selling seventy-five percent of that." for $750,000 in, in limited partnership shares. He said, it looks to me like you just created $250,000 in equity for yourself. Now, I wasn't, I, I really hadn't figured it out quite that way. But uh, I said, well, Steve, you're right. And he then proceeded to ask me, okay, if I buy a, a share, can I, how, can I affect the naming rights? Can I, can I impact trades? Can I help you hire a coach? Can I decide where we're going to play? Uh, can I have free seats? On and on and on. And the answer had to be no. I had to say no to everything because he was the first call I'd made, and he was just an investor. So I said no to everything. I said, Steve, look, it's a limited partnership. You're limited. I'm general. And for that reason, I can't give you, you know, a positive answer to any of that stuff. He said, well, okay, here's the deal. Um, and he was a math whiz. I have no idea how he came up with this number. He said, I have two questions. One, can my son buy the, the units by the way cost 25 grand each so he said can i my son buy seven twenty fifths of a unit i said well uh, i'm pretty sure i can find somebody to buy 18 25ths so to that answer i will that question i'll say yes next question right he said well uh if i buy a certain percentage of the shares can i then have additional you know uh management opportunity i said no you can't have that so he looks at me and says, well, in that case, I'm only going to buy seven units. Seven units? I was pitching one. He said, yeah, I can only buy seven units. And I said, well, uh, Steve, that, that sounds great to me. I walked out of his house, his office, and I had a check for two checks, one for 175 grand and one for seven. I, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about that because I was walking down LaSalle Street in Chicago with these checks in my pocket made out to, to an LLC that was basically just me. And right. I'm on my way. Bingo. So that was in probably late September. By April, we, I've, I, paid it, I paid off the balance. I'd raised 750 grand, and we were off to the races. And we started playing in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and made money every year, sold the team for well over a million dollars, I think a million and a half dollars a few years later. Everybody made money. Everybody was happy. And then I went into baseball and did the same thing on a much larger scale. Wow. So that was how I got out of my personal, uh, well, one of my personal financial uh, hells. That was an early personal financial hell, and I got out of it through sports, through buying and selling minor league sports teams, which was a gas wow. because at you know, that was before anybody had um, – there was there was no, like, oh, I can't even, what do you call uh, – um, where you can – what do they call that where you um, – fantasy football. There was no fantasy football, fantasy – none of that stuff. Yeah. So here I, here I was, all my friends are like, wow, you get, to, you get to trade players, you negotiate with them, you're buying – this is the coolest thing ever. Um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun, and you can, you can do that in basketball and baseball – you can't trade the players. They're, they're major league property. But in minor league basketball, you're on. You, at that time, you were on your own. It was really like the Wild West, and it was a blast. So I did that for wow, a few years, and then, fun. yeah, it was a gas. And from there, I got into real estate, which there I made and lost a lot of money. So I went broke again in real estate. Then I made a lot of money again in real estate by starting a real estate brokerage and. My primary clients were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I was selling foreclosed properties in the early, in the mid 2000s, which was about as good a time as ever to send those things. Fortunately, to sell those things, I was fortunate. And then I sold that business and decided I was, I didn't want to have any employees again ever. So I began yeah. coaching, and now I'm really doing something that, that is absolutely who I am. I I get to do what I want with whom I want every single day. So I'm a happy guy. Wow, that is quite a story. And what I love about it is, uh, what I love about it a lot is that you actually gave us an example 
of how to pitch something <laughs> in your personal story. So this is why I tell our listeners, listen for everything, because you never know where the diamonds are within the acre. You never know where the gold nugget will emerge as you're sifting through the, the chaff. You've got to be alert to what's going on around you, and it's oftentimes through stories. You know, we've had episodes on storytelling for story selling and topics of that variety, and when we hear people tell how they did it, this is the reason why I love to read biographies and autobiographies, because I like to see how individuals respond to the situations around them and help shape the situations around them based on what they've seen and their experiences up until that point. It makes for very fascinating reading, and I've learned so much about business and life doing it that way. So, Tom, first of all, let me thank you for taking the time to share all that. That was huge. Cool. Well, you're welcome. And uh, pitch number one, since you are a, a lover of stories, then you'd probably love my book, which is all stories. It's called Lifeness, Harm, Harmonizing an Entrepreneurial Life. And it's all about, it's all stories. From start to finish, it is stories along either my entrepreneurial path or my personal path. If it's a personal story, I relate it to business. If it's a business story, I relate it to personal stuff. Because like you, I believe we all learn best from stories. So it, that's the way I work with my clients frequently. It's the way I teach when I lead classes. It's all about the story. That's what, you know, that's where we learn. We find ourselves in someone else's story. And then, then from there, we can take that story down our own path. And the lesson yeah. stays with us. So I agree with you wow. 100%. Yeah, that's great. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to get into some of the nitty-gritty of what you uh, are so excited to share with us today, and we're so excited to hear. And we're going to come back to the elements sort of like what we discussed when we talk about blind spots and things like that. I see a correlation. Mm -hmm. But first of all, there's something that you shared with me earlier that I am just dying to dive into because <laughs> I have kind of felt this way for a long time, and I want to hear your take on it. Why? Okay. Work life, why is work-life balance bullshit, and how do you find harmony in your, in, your, in your balance or whatever you want to call it? Well, yes. So we have, to, we have to first, Adam, try to extricate that word balance from your vocabulary Bec and because it is bullshit, and here's why. When you think of balance, what picture comes to mind? First when picture. I think of balance, when I think of balance, I'm seeing a calm sea. Okay. Like, like I'm standing on the shoreline, and I'm looking out, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing an expansive blue, and it's very calm, and it's very level. Okay. That's, that's one way that people see balance. So I, I would say that also sounds somewhat harmonious, since the colors probably blend, the sea probably blends into the horizon and into the sand. That sounds pretty harmonious to me. Balance, in a physical sense, frequently brings out the thought of a teeter-totter or the picture of someone who's – when you think of a balancing act, you might think of a tightrope. You might think of juggling. In a physical sense, balance requires your physical participation. You describe something where everything is serene. But in a physical sense, since balance requires your physical participation, it inherently has conflict. Because if you just tried to balance on your two feet, you're unconsciously and actually physically, your, your weight is shifting constantly. So balance implies conflict. Without conflict, with, without conflict there, there's no balance. There's nothing to balance. Everything is serene, as you described. My position is that when we seek balance, we're asking for a situation that has, has conflict in it. Harmony, on the other hand, okay, so you and I, disagree on everything and you know I, i'm a cubs fan you're a dodgers fan it just it goes on and on and on everything right. about us is different okay now i can choose to to just or either of us can choose to say you know i i just can't stand on it can't stand adam anymore everything we, it's just a constant argument or i could find some place where we can agree, where we can harmonize. And when I begin to sing your song in your key, you look at me and you think, oh, okay, he's not such a bad guy anyway. And once I begin to look, 
for the places where we can harmonize, where the, the places where we can agree and find peace, we're going to all of a sudden change our positions. And ne- the next time, you're going to be looking for an opportunity to sing my song. And you're probably, by the way, going to be a background harmony. You're not going to look to sing over me. You want to sing along with me. You want to sing my song in the background. And as we begin to do that, as I, the, 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 this book began really as a, as a letter from me to myself 20 years earlier. Because had I read this book or even thought of these things 20 years earlier, my life would have been a lot easier. I wouldn't have made half of the abundant mistakes I made because I was busy fighting. I was busy constantly playing defense. And if you said A, I was, you know, I was poised to hit A back to you in, in another, with another letter. Here, I'll give you B. No, but I, A is you, B is me. And I was constantly playing defense. And once I realized that I could harmonize, my, my muscles got relaxed and loose. My relationships went from being, you know, antagonistic to harmonious. And my life and all the successes in my life flowed from that. It's like I am now doing exactly what I want to do every day. I mean, don't tell this to any of my clients, but I would do it for free. Because I really love it. it. I don't, I'm no longer working for the money. I'm working, I mean, I get up and I get, I mean, this morning I woke up at 5 o'clock because I knew I had a really big day ahead of me. And I'm thinking every appointment throughout the day, I can't wait to do it, including this, including this, uh, this podcast. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so there I know, I, 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 I know the feeling. Day. <laughs> right. I, I, know, I, know, I know the feeling. And, and I'd like to point something else out, too, that you just did. And this is uh, one of those semantic things. And I, and I talk about this in my book uh, extensively about how you make minor shifts that cause big differences in your perceptions and your actions. Mm-hmm. You said, I get to do this. Now, think right. about the difference between saying, I get to do this versus I need to do this or I have to do this. See, oh, somebody yeah. calls me, I yeah, if somebody tells me I need to do something, I say, I don't actually need to do anything but die someday. They say that the yeah. only two things inevitable are death and taxes, but a good accountant can take care of the latter. The only thing that has to happen right. is I have to die. So I don't need to do anything beyond that. And as far as, you know, as far as, you know, quote unquote, my interests that you think you know, Hey, it's my life. If I want to run into the ground, I will. You know, <laughs> I mean, exactly. I'll decide what my interests are. I, 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 you may have heard that. You may have heard that phrase. Sometimes you hear about it when you're debating politics, and somebody says, "Why would you vote against your interests?" And my response to that is, number one, what do you know about my interests, and number two, who are you to determine what my interests are? I mean, just. I mean, I might say it a little bit nicer than that, but that's what's going through my mind is right. my interests are just that, mine. And, right. And, and, and they're and, diverse, and, 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 by and, the way. Right, exactly. And getting back to what yeah. I was saying is, uh, is you know, rather than saying I need to, you say I get to or I have to. Well, boy, mm-hmm. doesn't that make it sound like an obligation? I mean, like folks, like, mm-hmm. like let's say somebody says, well, you know, I have to go to the doctor and get a shot. Actually, you don't. You can choose not to get that shot. Uh, you decide what the consequences are. Maybe there are no consequences. Maybe you're better off without it. Maybe there's another way to achieve the same result. You don't have to. But when you get to do something, it's like, yes, I get to wake up in the morning. I get to do, I get to do this episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. I get to do this call with my coaching client. I get to work on this chapter of my book. I get to go for a walk. I get to spend time with my cat. I get, I get to, I get to go online and share my brilliance and passion with the world. That, I, just, I just wanted to leap in there and, and highlight that because every time somebody says, I get to do something, like, yes. We must highlight this. More people must hear it. Amen. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So I love this. So let's take a, a uh, let's change the subject here a little bit. Take a segue. Is uh-huh. we want to talk about blind spots, and we are relating to this idea of harmony. And what we were discussing earlier is 
what do we do to find the cultural blind spots in our business? First of all, let's define that term. What is a cultural blind spot? And then, Tom, what do we do about it? Well, first of all, you know, it's funny. Our blind spots are something that, like, I recently uh, was writing an exercise for a client of mine asking them to identify their blind spots. And and I actually am embarrassed to say I sent it out and we sh- and and they they replied. It was like th- uh, three clients uh, working for the same business. And when I realized that that was the dumbest question I could have asked, I'm asking them what their blind spots are. Well, how stupid is that? They're blind, you idiot. Of course they don't can't see them. You know, like I they can, of course. You know, I could tell them what some of their blind spots are, and then we could work on them. But who am I? I mean, it was just the dumbest exercise. So. Uh, but it was a great revelation. Like, oh, and here's how I learned it because I thought, oh, God, I better do this exercise along with them. Because sometimes, as as a as a as a coach, sometimes in life, you know, we do ad lib. This is jazz. This isn't. We don't have a, a symphony written out for us. So, I just uh, I knew what they. I thought I knew what they needed. I sent them the exercise. I thought I'd do it. And then as soon as I start doing it, I thought this is ridiculous. But in answer to what the blind so. I, the, the blind spot is that's exact. That's the stuff that everybody else sees, but you. And to, to use the to, to explain it in cultural terms, with I have a clients who will say to me, "I've got the greatest culture. I don't understand why my business isn't working, but one thing I know for sure is I've got a great culture." In fact, I will tell you about a complete moron who sold a business, and when he sold this business, he said to the buyer. You know, here's the best, strongest thing about my business. It's the culture. And here's, here's the true story of this. The moron is me because I sold a business. This is the, a real estate brokerage. And I thought, I really believed that the strongest thing about the business was the culture. And so I sell it. I walk just about less than six weeks later. I happened to, for some reason, I had to go back into the office. I don't know if it was to pick something up or drop something off. But in any case, I walked into, into the office. And as soon as I walk in, nothing had changed. Same furniture, nothing nothing had changed. But as soon as I walked in, I, I could feel it. It was I could take a deeper breath. It was like, wow, this place is really cool. And I sat down with the, the guy I told the business to, who happened to be one of my employees, and I said, geez, man, I you know, I told you how great – this culture was, but I just walked in, and I don't have to talk to anybody. I don't have to say. I can see that, A, I was wrong, and, B, you knew it, and that's why you bought the business because you saw what we needed. So blind spot, by definition, we don't see it, but frequently it appears in our culture in the, the parts of our culture that aren't working that we simply can't identify, uh, and and it happens Time and time happens in our lives. You know how, like, in your life, you may think that you are, you know, you're this real tough guy, you know, and everybody, no one realizes that you actually have some vulnerability. No one realizes that, you know, you really are kind of scared about stuff. You think you've managed to play this incredible tune that no one has identified. And the fact is, we know your little lies and we know your bullshit. We know it absolutely. The, only, the thing that amazes us is that you can't see it. And we all have that. And all we have to do is ask our husbands or our wives, and they will happily point those blind spots out to us. Or our kids, for example. It's obvious to everyone else but us. I, I, you know, I mean, I, you, I could give you example or, uh, upon example, and you could come right back at me with more examples. These blind, and, and the blind spots, that's why we need coaches. That's why we need support. That's why when we're, it, we rarely operate at peak efficiency in a silo. We want other people. We want to communicate. We want, we want feedback. You want to live in a, you want to really develop. And if your goal is to develop some really big blind spots, absolutely never invite feedback. Because you'll be sure that you will cement your blind spots in place. Feedback right. is where we learn about our blind spots. Yeah, you know what I, I love about 
the way you present information, Tom, is we is we start with something that is a phrase that we commonly hear, like work-life balance and cultural blind spots. And then you totally change the terms on us and cause us to think in a new way. It's like, it's like when I get up on stages at events and I, I speak about how business creators can win at the game of business and marketing so they can thrive from the intersection of their brilliance and passion. And one of the things I'll say is, and, and folks, let me tell you, the very last thing you need or want in your business is traffic to your website. And, like, what? Uh, what are you talking about? You, here, here, here's the change. Here's the change. When you think about traffic, you think about the reasons I work from a home office. When you think about website, what's a website? Is that a webinar registration page, a podcast page, an about page, a home page, a sales page, a contact page? All those things can be websites, and a website can consist of all those things. Rather than traffic to my website, I would prefer to have visitors to my web pages who are pre-qualified, prepped, and pumped, the three Ps of website conversions. So I'm not saying don't get a bunch of people that come to your web pages. I'm simply redefining the terms. Instead of traffic to your website, which if I go, if I were, you know, if I were, you know, running some kind of marketing agency, and I was talking about traffic to my website, I'd be another me too. But when I'm the person saying, no, you don't want traffic to your website. You want visitors to your web pages. Now you're differentiating yourself. That's what I, that's what I love about mm -hmm. what you do, Tom, is you, is you make us think a little bit differently. I mean, we all, well, and, I, and I acknowledge this myself as a coach and a consultant. You know, we're looking for the blind spots. We're looking for the stuff we're missing. Well, how the heck is the client supposed to know that? Because if it's their blind spots, they're blind to it. If, how are they supposed to see what they're missing? Well, if they weren't missing it already, they might see it. <laughs> That's why they hired me. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like one of those moments when you feel like, how, where did, when did I become such a complete idiot? It was, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, but we all need those moments to wake us up and, and humble us. So I was happy to have it. And, uh, I'm happy for the opportunity to share it with you and share share my own mistakes with them because they'll learn from it too. Exactly. I certainly don't hide from it with my client. It's like oh, right yeah. out there. Okay, Tom's not perfect. Right. We're, yeah, that, this is not a newsflash. Right. All right. So let's go a little bit deeper with this. Uh, you know, you and I as, as coaches, as consultants, we need peer-to-peer -peer coaching sometimes. I think we're already touching on it, but tell us more mm -hmm. about why we need the peer-to-peer -peer coaching. And that's a, such a great question. Because what did I say a few minutes ago, Adam? When you when you work in a silo, it's you can just really you can expand, create, and solidify, and actually lock up your blind spot. And as coaches, we're a bunch of cowboys and cowgirls making our own rules you know, creating our own path, and we think we're so smart that we don't need any help sometimes. Some of us, I, the wise among us, have our own coaches and have our own, you know, mastermind groups that we can go to and say, man, I'm a mess, or my client just did this. What would you do? Or how do you, I mean, some of the simple stuff, like how much do you charge? How did you go from, you know, $500 a month to $5,000 a month. How did you go from no clients to a full book of business? I, these, are, these are important questions that some, many coaches don't know where to go to get the answers. Now, they may go to some online program or something, and some of those are great, but there's, most of them aren't particularly interactive. So for me, uh, a, a, a mastermind among other coaches is just like the greatest way for me to get out there and learn more about myself, see my own blind spots. Uh, and I say that because I recently, with another business coach, Chad James, started something called the Master Coach Forum, and we do exactly that. We meet with strong coaches every week, and in, within our group, I mean, the questions that come up, the support that comes up, is incredible, and it's the same stuff that I was just mentioning. Sometimes they're simple questions. Sometimes they're, you know, I, I'm working on a piece of content, and I, I just, I, I'm stuck right here. Uh, and, you know, sadly, your the response you get might be, 
well, who are you writing that content for? I don't know anybody that would be interested in that. And by the way, if that happens, anyone who's ever written a book could probably say, I really could have used someone to ask me why I wrote that chapter. Uh, you know, what was I thinking? And because sometimes we write content that we think is so important and we haven't done one bit of, like, did you do a Facebook, you know, did you ask a question of all your friends on Facebook or LinkedIn, any kind of polling or anything? No, I just, man, this is the greatest. I just wrote this wonderful you know, <laughs> entire program all about time management. And then you say, well, hey, have you read, hey, do you know who Hal Elrod is? Because he wrote this little bitty book that is incredible, and he doesn't, may not call it time management, but that's exactly what you're, you're saying. And you might want to just read that book and write a different one. It's like, you know, there's so many things that we do that we miss. So Master Coach Forum is all about coaches getting together, talking about what goes on in our lives, how we do our business, because you can go to all the, I mean, and I'm all for learning how to be a coach. So there are a number of great places that you can go, I mean, physical places where you can get training to be a coach. Uh, I, I went to IPEC, but there are many others. And get learn how to be a coach because, first of all, it just doesn't mean being an expert. And, in fact, you're frequently, I know that I'm frequently coaching people who are more successful at what they do financially than I've ever been. But right. that's okay. That's totally okay. I don't, I'm not ashamed of that, and they don't, you know, the, the, the client who says, well, you can't understand my problem because you've, well, you know what? I think you're wrong, and here's why. I mean, there are, there are just so many. Look, Tiger Woods has had coaches his entire career. Not one of them can hang with him on the golf course, but they can see his blind yeah. spots all right. And so right. clearly, but, but you know what they do know how to do? They know how to coach. They know how to listen because that's, I believe, our most important skill as coaches is not this brilliance that we spout off all the time. It's our abilities to listen and then to mirror back to our client what we really hear and what we really see. That's where the skill Wait. is, and that's what's separate. Go ahead. Great. One of the first business lessons I ever got, and this is from one of my earliest business mentors, Stephen Rowell, the idea doctor, and he explained uh -huh. to me that as a mentor, your job is not to tell your protege or your acolyte or your client what to do it's to help them tell themselves what to do sure just as you said to you provide know, the mirror to provide the outlet for the brainstorming that helps them to find their own conclusion and then we compare that to a key concept when it comes to marketing sales influence and persuasion is people will be more way more likely exponentially more likely to do what you want them to do, to buy what you want them to buy, to invest in what you want them to invest in, to give them the money you want them to give you when they feel like it was their idea. Well, that's absolutely true. I, I will tell you, there's an interesting, uh, there's sort, sort of an interesting dynamic that goes on in coaching because it, I, I've experienced it and I've seen other coaches experience this too. Now, when I first started coaching, my goal, I believed that the best way I could serve my client was to have them think that every one of the ideas that they impl implemented as a result of my coaching was their idea. I, I believed that with every fiber of my being. And so what did I do? I created a practice of people that really believed that. And so we reached a point when, as a coach, you know, the, the word that we hear often when our clients don't know how to say I'm done is I'm taking a break. Tom, this has been great. I think I'm ready to take a little break. You've helped me out so much. Things are going great. I think I'm going to take a break. And that, that means see you later and, and now you've got to go out and find new clients. And right. what I realized was that so those people would call me back in six months because all the things that I had convinced them they had discovered, well, I had helped them discover those things. And so I had left them, really, I had, I had dramatically misled them. It was, I mean, I, I came from a good place in my heart. I, I wanted to serve them, and I wanted them to be able to take credit for it. 
But what I ended up doing was having them really believe for a while that they had created that 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 change, and they hadn't. They had co-created it, and and I right. they needed me or another coach to be there, and so that was a tough. That was early, probably in the first eighteen months of my coaching career, and I had to figure out. Well, wait a minute. That 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 really. We want to talk about core beliefs. That I that really shook one of my core beliefs, and I had to figure out. Well, what does this mean? How do I tell people that they still need me? Because that seems sort of self-serving to me. But it became, it didn't, it, it ceased being self-serving when I realized they're just coming, they keep coming back. And so what not only helped my clients, also kept me from developing a practice that needed constant new, you know, new, new, new clients. That doesn't serve me. Then I'm spending half, over half of my time marketing myself. I want to spend 100% of my time helping people with a waiting list. Sure. And that's what I do now because they know that I'm a key part of their change, of their business transformation, this new trajectory they're on. They don't want to let me go. Therefore, waiting list. And that's what coaches yeah. want. Well, you know, this is what I have noticed in terms of some of my relationships is the same here. There are people who come and go and there's this one client of mine in particular where it seems like we kind of leapfrog each other. Uh, and every so often as we leapfrog over each other, as we, as we both move higher and higher, we find our mutual need to work together just at different stages for different reasons at different times. So you find some of those relationships as well. And what we also have going on is we have some clients who engage us once a year. And once a year, our role is to come in, basically look at their marketing, look at their operations, and just pick it apart. And that's it. We come in once a year. Mm -hmm. The reason why is because it keeps us on the outside and helps us to see things that they cannot see because it would be there, as you said, blind spot, because they can't see it because it's their blind spot. Mm -hmm. And plus, by keeping us one step detached from it, it'll always look like a different thing to us. Whereas we've got we got two involved, uh, we would start to be driving through the same tunnel as they were. We have a few clients like that, and it's great to have them come back once a year, and we're honored by the opportunity to do that. And it works very well for everybody involved because they get to Look, see their clients and we're able to show it to them. Yeah. Yeah, Adam, and that makes perfect sense. And that's a you just described, you know, like as I was speaking, we could we could call what I what I just experienced the blind spot because you're 100 percent right. There are clients like that. I wasn't thinking of them as I was telling that story. As I was I was talking about, I was really describing my clients, the types of clients I work with, who right. tend, you know, they don't come to me for a specific problem or a promotion or how do we overcome this particular hurdle? It's, it's more, uh, maybe they may think it's a particular hurdle, but it's, it's usually a, like a general problem that we have to deal with. But you're 100% right. There are great clients and great coaches out there who work with clients who just need, I, you know, look, I need you to help me with this one isolated thing. And, in fact, what I need you to do is tell me how to solve this issue right now. Let me go out and do it. And I'll come back in six months and tell you how it worked, and then we'll work on making me even better and keep coming back. So you, you, thank you for pointing that out. Certainly. Thank you. Now, we're looking on the outside. We're, we're doing peer-to-peer -peer coaching with coaches. We're looking at helping other people see their blind spots because they need us to point them out. We're looking at harmony. So let's look inward. How does our okay. inner dialogue predict our future? Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I do, and, and I was just talking to a, a client last night who was talking about some of the conversations he has with himself, like, why aren't my, why aren't my employees listening to me? Why aren't they doing what I tell them to do? And this inner dialogue for him is a, he just goes into this kind of, been, which is, well, they don't like me, or they don't respect me, or they, you know, they don't care, or they're just here for the money, and all these different things, none of which are true, by the way, 
but he goes deeply into this, you know, like like vortex of despair. But the you know the conversation with himself, unfortunately, there is no illumination for his blind spot. In this case, the reason why he's having all the problems that he described is because he thinks his employees are there to serve him. He, he has not gotten yet, or he got it last night. We'll see if he's able to apply it. But he had not gotten yet that he was there to serve them. And I said to him, this is the whole point here. Of course they aren't listening to you. Of course they don't respect you because they don't feel you respect them. And they think that you are a tyrant. He said, why am I a tyrant? I mean, I, I pay them well. I do all these wonderful things. We, we just had this great meeting. I said, you don't listen. You're a great guy. You've got a great business. It's running really well. You don't listen. And you are there to serve them. So actually, I, I sent him to, to uh, I don't know if you've read a book called Delivering Happiness. Have you read that? By the Not guy. Yet. I, pardon me? Not yet, but I'm sure I will now. Well, you know, I don't know why I'm I don't know why I'm blocking on his name, but he's the guy who started Zappos. And as soon as you know, as soon oh, as Tony I Shea. stop the, yes, delivering happiness. Yeah. Well, yeah, he Shea. gets it in spades. He gets it. He's working for his employees. Everything they do is for him, for him. Everything he does is for them. Right. Wow. Do you think they live there? That's a harmonious relationship. You bet it is. I, you know, you know what's interesting about Zappos is, uh, and I've told this story on other episodes of Business Creators Radio Show. Is I had heard a story from somebody that you could call Zappos and order a pizza and they'd deliver it to you. Mm-hmm. I tried it. It that's worked. in the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I tried it. It worked. They, they, they actually, they got my location. They 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 went online. They said, okay, we have uh, we have these three pizza shops. Uh, which one would you like your pizza from? I mean, they they even took my money. Yeah, if it's I funny. Think, I bet I think you I wrote took that my book. Money, but somehow they yeah somehow they somehow they I think at least I think they took my money. I, somehow it was that was even easier. I, I don't know if they actually come to think of it. This was ten years ago. I can't remember exactly, but it felt like all I had to do is make that one phone call. So maybe it did take take my money, or maybe they, um, or maybe I paid in cash. I can't remember that piece. Maybe I shouldn't have blurted that out. But the fact is, no, all I had to do is make that one call, and a pizza showed up. And here's the thing: it doesn't matter that you remember the story. You remember it was Zappos. You don't remember yes. the result. You remember the experience. And the experience that's was: right. I could call them and ask for anything. And that's. Exactly what delivering happiness is all about. That's why he, the, the whole concept was so amazing. And I'm sure after he wrote that book, he got a lot of people calling, wanting pizza. So he had to figure out, well, I guess we're, you know, I guess we're going to have to do this now because we're getting goofy, yeah. goof, on, goofs on us all the time. So they did it. Probably, uh-huh. could, you know, but, yeah, probably as a result a of this of mine, podcast, they'll get some more calls. Yeah, a friend, yeah, a friend of mine, uh, had, had a Zappos experience as well. He. Uh, got into a relationship with a woman who, uh, let's just say, was fanatical about shoes. So he mm-hmm. was trying to get educated on that because it was something that uh, was sort of a trance element for her. So he would, mm-hmm. uh, he would contact Zappos and say, hey, can you go to this webpage? Uh, you see that picture? What kind of shoes are those? What are those called? And then tell him, say, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when he wanted to buy shoes for this woman as gifts, where do you think he went? You bet. And yeah. I, it, I, I thought when I first read about it, because when I read the book, I had never ordered shoes online. It seemed stupid to me. Why would you order shoes online? Because you need to. They they really need to fit. But when you right. know that you can return the ones that don't fit, makes life pretty easy. In fact, I can I can order ten pairs of shoes, return seven of them, keep three. I'm happy. They're happy. Everything works out great. So, yeah, I think it's yeah, – he was way ahead of the curve on that, and hats off to him. Exactly, exactly. So you have told me about something, and I can't believe how far we are along already. We can't believe we're already down to the 50-minute mark. This is really going great. I'm enjoying this interview so much. So there is at least one more thing I want to make sure we cover, Tom, is – you mentioned something to me about something called your internal loyal soldier. 
So mm. what is your internal loyal soldier, and what are we doing about this soldier? So the loyal soldier, which is a, a story from my that I, I mentioned, I, I sort of recount in my book, but it's a story that I first heard uh, on my first vision quest. Now, I, te- I, I go out into the wilderness occasionally, and when I first started doing it, I would go out uh, as a quester. I'd go out on a vision quest, which briefly in, in a Native American tradition, which we've sort of adopted, a young brave as he's preparing to uh, either enter adolescence or perhaps leave adolescence and enter into manhood, would go out, would leave the tribe, and he would go out into the wilderness by himself, and he would survive. And when he came back, he would like bring a gift for the tribe. And that was his that was his rite of passage from one stage of life to another. And so it, in the way that I'm trained to do it, so we go out into the wilderness and we, for 10 days and we fast for, for four of the 10 days. And we're alone, completely alone, for those four days. And we learn to just, you know, I'm talking about slowing down and seeing the horizon. For, well, it's actually... Uh, uh, it's a four-day fast and three nights of solo that we do it out in the wilderness. Right. In fact, the first time I did it was without – all we had is a sleeping bag and a tarp, no tent or anything. And so the, anyway, the story that I heard there was a story of a loyal soldier. Basically, it's this. In the Second World War, there was a young soldier by the name of Lieutenant Onoda, and he was sent to the, a remote Philippine island towards the end of 1944. And he, he was, there were just a few soldiers there, and his orders were this. Stay here until we relieve you. We will come and get you. Never surrender, ever, until you get orders to leave. Okay. So fine. There were probably, I don't know, maybe 100 or 200 troops, Japanese troops, on this remote Philippine island when he got there. And, and many of them began to leave in, in early and mid-1945, approaching the end of the war. And, but again, final orders, stay here, we'll come, and, we'll come and back, never surrender. So at any rate, uh, the war ends in 1945, but no one came and got there. There were four soldiers originally. Lieutenant Onoda was yeah. the only officer, so he was in charge. No one came back to get him. Well, in 1950, one of them escaped and went back, and, and he even came, he, he got messages back to them. He said, no, the war is really over. In fact, in the late 40s, even before that, the, uh, the, the Japanese dropped leaflets from the sky saying the war is over. You can come down now. They never came down. And they would get messages. More leaflets were dropped down with newspapers and with letters from their family. It's over. Come down. And, the, in fact, over the course of the first few years, they, uh, they shot and killed Philippine policemen coming up to tell them the war was over. And time passed. In 1959, another one of them died in a skirmish. Then in, uh, around that same time, the, uh, one of them, Lieutenant Onoda's brother and sister, came to the island. They were in a valley. He was in the mountain. They were in a valley with uh, megaphones screaming to him, to come down, the war was over. He crawled down within a hundred yards of them. He could see them, knew, yep, this is my brother, this is my sister. But he said, nope, that's propaganda. They've been put up to this. The war is not over. Wow. By night, yes, in 1974, some young sort of spaced out Japanese student just ambles up into the mountains and finds Lieutenant Onoda, who by this time was the only one left alive. And he says, hey, man, the war really is over. Of course, Onoda doesn't believe him. And he says, he asked the one magic question, which was, what do I have to do to convince you that the war is over? So Lieutenant Onoda said, well, you have to bring my commanding officer here, and he has to relieve me of duty. So the guy goes down. Sure enough, a couple months later, they find his commanding officer. Who knows what he was doing at the time? And they put him in a uniform, probably quite a bit larger than the one he'd come out of almost 30 years earlier. Yeah. And he goes up. He goes up and he says to Lieutenant, and he gives him new orders. The new orders are to surrender. War is over. So Lieutenant Onoda, take, Lieutenant Onoda, here's what he had left. He had some bullets. Uh, imagine like Barney Fife with some bullets left in his gun. He had his weapons. He had a knife, and he had a knife 
that his mother had given him when he left in 1944. And she gave, imagine your mother giving you a knife with these instructions. Kill yourself before you're captured. That wow. gives me all of the, So he gives this stuff up. Well, now he goes back to Japan, and he is, meanwhile, in Japan, he was already famous because people knew about him. They've been trying to reach him for 30 years, for God's sake. So anyway, he goes down, and now the, I heard this story. There's more to the story, but I know we have, we're, we have limited time. Basically, I heard this story, and it, I mean, I was just overwhelmed with tears, with raw emotion, because all I could think of was he had spent 30, basically his 20s, 30s, and 40s, and early 50s in, in, a, in a self-imposed prison. He was in the mountains in the jungle by himself for nearly 30 years fighting a war that didn't exist. And it didn't take me long to figure out I'd been doing the same thing. And we all do that. Whether it's holding a grudge or getting defensive whenever anybody does this because of something that happened to us 25 years ago. It's that loyal soldier inside us that says, you know, don't, don't, don't take a risk. Don't go out. It's raining. You might catch a cold. Or don't buy that business because it might fail. Who would ever put an Italian restaurant on that corner? There's one two blocks away. Whatever it is, those messages that we get that are really well-intended from inside the deepest parts of our hearts, they come from our loyal soldier because he or she is scared shitless that you're going to do something and get hurt like you did as a kid. You, oh, you did yeah. that and you went to school and you got teased by all the other kids. Don't ever do that again. So it's our loyal soldier that sends us these messages, and he or she absolutely means well. They're trying to protect us. But they send us these messages that don't serve us. And so you can call them uh, limiting beliefs because that's what they are. Call them whatever cool term you want. But it's that loyal soldier inside us with whom we must make peace if we're going to succeed. So – I, I gave this talk once, and someone said, well, why don't, we do, why don't you just kill your loyal soldier? I said, no way. I've named my loyal soldier. That's Elliot. I don't want to kill him. Now, what I do want to do is make him my ally because every once in a while he is right. You know, I want to listen to warnings, you know, realistic warnings, but what I don't want to do is just follow his advice blindly. I've got to make peace right. with Elliot. We all have our Elliot. We all have that inner soldier, that loyal soldier inside us that, that, is war, that is really warning us of danger ahead. But for entrepreneurs in particular, we have to be able to separate, okay, you know what, Elliot, that is, thank you. I know there's an Italian restaurant two blocks away. I appreciate that you pointed that out to me. But you know what? I can, this restaurant is a little bit different. Our price point is different. Our neighborhood, even two blocks in a big city, is could be uh, you know like a, a worlds away. I think this thing's going to work. But thanks, I'm glad you pointed that out to me. I got to really do some more research. That's yeah. who our loyal soldier is, and that's the conversation we have with him or her. And that is the ally. Absolutely, he or she is an yeah. ally that we need to work with and keep in touch with to be Absolutely. successful as entrepreneurs. Absolutely, Tom. We'll tell you what. Uh, we're actually at the top of the hour. We have two minutes left, and I want to give one of those minutes to you to share how you serve our business creators and what's the next step. Basically, I, I think the best thing I could do to any for any business creator is to just – I'm sure, and I know you have books that you recommend. I mean, some of my favorites are uh, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. We just talked about one. Uh, Delivering Happiness. Uh, another book that works for me, for yeah. especially for early stage business coaches, is Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port. For me, right. you know, my book, uh, Lifeness: Harmonize an Entrepreneurial Life. I mean, these are. I believe that we, we as, as as business owners and as coaches, we've got to keep growing. I'm, I'm looking on my desk right now. Start with why. And my goodness, it's an oldie but a goodie. There's a reason he sold millions of those. It's a great book. We need to read these things. Personally, how do I help business owners and coaches? I help them through the Master Coach Forum, which you can Google Master Coach Forum and get information. You can email me at tomrubens.com, tom at tomrubens.com. You can go to the website and learn about it. 
for my businesses, I mean, pretty much what I – I'm a business coach. So how do businesses keep right. score? Dollars and cents. I probably spend yep. less time on the dollars and cents piece than I do on the culture piece and the, the, all the other stuff that goes in, into a business. But that's where I spend my time is working with business owners, helping them grow their businesses, helping them see their blind spots because, man, they're, yep. they're crystal clear for me in their absolute total darkness for them. That's what life Absolutely. looks like. Yes. All right, so everybody visit TomRubens.com. And, Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you, and I, I wish you all the best. Keep up the great work. You bet. For, you bet. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.